Welcome to Navigating Education, the podcast. The podcast that can help educators from around the world navigate not only the present, but also the future. Through discussions of instruction, ed tech, policy, and school leadership, we're here to connect with you and educators from around the world to help them amplify student learning for the betterment of our students and their future. All righty, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Navigating Education, the podcast. I'm here with uh, Nate Ridgeway, who is a teacher, author, speaker from Indianapolis, Indiana. He teaches at the secondary level. And beforehand, we we're talking a little bit about uh, teaching special education and creating you know, supports and in inclusive settings for students uh, that are neurodiverse and multilingual learners. So it's fantastic to have you on. I'm excited to talk a lot about your work with the breaking uh, the blockbuster model as someone that went to blockbuster as a student and kid. Um, and now that emerged, I went to Redbox, and then I went to Netflix and all the other streaming platforms. And thinking about that in education, I think that I've talked about this quite a bit as well, of creating 24-7 instruction that's inclusive um, and equitable for our students. And I think that you and I have a lot of agreement in terms of what you're talking about. So I'm excited to you know pick your brain and learn something from you. So thanks for being on, Nate. Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me, Matt. I appreciate it. Yeah, so let's jump into uh, talking a little bit about yourself before we jump into uh, today's topic of breaking the blockbuster model. And tell us a little bit about, you know, your background in education and then how did you get to where you are now? Yeah, so, um, yeah, hi, everybody out there. Uh, my name is Nate Ridgeway. Um, yeah, as Matt said, um, so I'm a teacher in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, this will be my ninth year teaching coming up. Um, so in terms of like where I got to where I am now, um, as Matt said, I had a, I have a background in special education. I actually started off um, teaching that, but I'm also licensed in history and that's the content area that I teach. Um, I've taught both in middle school and high school settings. Um, and as Matt also mentioned, then I just recently published my second book, uh, Breaking the Blockbuster Model, and that looks at how we can use ed tech and accessibility to think about kind of where we're going as educators and, and teachers and things like that. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, you've also were a part of another book, um, I believe, yeah. Don't Ditch That Tech, right? Yeah, right. yeah Don't Ditch That Tech, which um, both myself, um, my mom, who's a uh, collegiate educator who teaches people how to become educators. Um, and then also Matt Miller um, from the Ditch That Textbook series. And then we we co-wrote that book to look at differentiation uh, with digital devices. No, that's awesome. So I'm sure that your experiences in the classroom, experiences working on that book really set the stage for you thinking about, you know, what is the blockbuster model for education mm -hmm. and then how in the light of the past couple of years, how have, you know, what changes have you noticed? And maybe even before that, you know, did some, did some things accelerate any of the change or do you feel like, you know, we saw this year, the great pushback to normal. So tell us a little bit about your thoughts about, you know, what this blockbuster model is and then the mm -hmm. trends that you've seen over the last couple of years. 
Yeah. So for me, um, when I was sitting down and writing this, this book, um, the idea actually came from a blog that I wrote like back in like 2019. So this is like a couple months after our first book came out. And um, really what kind of motivated me was in a lot of ways was um, this was like pre-pandemic, right? This is all stuff that I was thinking about, you know, before the pandemic actually happened. And I was thinking about, you know, like how we meet students' needs in the classroom. And I, I was happy with what we had done in that book. Um, but I was ultimately kind of still dissatisfied because I felt like I wasn't making, like I, I wasn't looking at some of the systemic issues that that with education and educators um, and some of the stuff that we have to deal with on a daily basis. And so then I was, I was thinking, I was crafting this idea, I was like, man, like there's, there's a, you know, something that's really easy for people to relate to is like, you know, like metaphors, like, you know, movies are like a really easy one that we can get, you know, all get along with, right? Um, and Blockbuster for me, like when I was writing this book, a Blockbuster for me represents those things in the classroom that we always think and always thought were going to be there. And in some respects still very much are, but they are looking increasingly outdated uh, and in need of some serious renovations. Um, so it's like, you know, the things that we consider to be like traditional or like if a, you know, like a student walks into the classroom, like, oh, I know I'm always gonna get a textbook when I walk into you know, like my a high school classroom, I'm gonna get one of those things, cool, I wonder how much it's gonna weigh this year. Um, or, you know, like, for example, like, you know, syllabi, right? It's like something that we consider so traditional to the educational experience as a whole. And I wanted to take a moment and really look at some of these practices, essentially, and really do some very deep reflection about like, is what we're doing actually working? And is it best for kids? And when then when the pandemic hit, I was like, man, like all, all the inequities that I already started like thinking about and looking at whether it's, you know, socioeconomic or, you know, uh, racial linguistic or, you know, all these different you know things that my mind was kind of processing. I was like, man, we could see all those issues exposed on a much more visible level than, than we could beforehand. Um, and so that really, like, I think I started, I, this book really started for me about this time last year. And I really started like hammering out like what I thought kind of was going to be like my, essentially my like manifesto of teaching, essentially. Yeah, I mean, do you think so? You and I are probably similar to the same age. Do you think mm -hmm. from you know when we were in high school, um, a lot has changed? If you look at it more on like the grand scale, I mean, we I, do have devices. I think, I think in some ways, superficially, some things have changed, but then in other ways, like a lot of the like underlying supports and structures have not. And so, like, what I mean by that, like, for example, like, is like textbooks, right? Like. Uh, just as a very physical example of that, um, like a lot of textbooks now are digital, right? Like they, they have this, you know, digital, either they're entirely digital, like you, you know, you purchase like a subscription to them, right? Like your school does. Um, or they have like some like internet enabled portion, right? Um, but, you know, we, we know in students today, my, my students tell me this all the time. Um, you know, my, my students uh, this year, they were given, um, and I'm not joking when I say this, uh, paperback textbooks, which is first of all, a horrible idea. Cause you know, like they would just get shredded instant as soon as, you know, a student puts one in their backpack. Right. But like, as soon as you mention the word textbook today, like students still have that very same visceral response to it that we did when we went to school. 
right? Like, oh, okay, great chapter outlines. Here we go. Um, you know, so like there, there's, I, I feel like superficially, like some of the stuff around that has changed, but I feel like a lot of the stuff that's like underlying those systems is still pretty darn similar. And I, like, I'll give you another example, like homework would be another like really classic one. Or like the idea that like, oh no, like what I do in class doesn't stop there. I'm going to have to have something that I'm going to have to carry on and do extra at home. Um, that idea is still very much around. And um, Kathy Vattertrot, who did this really long, long, very well sourced book that I highly recommend you read on it. She calls it like this cult of homework that she feels like that we've bought into um, that administrators expect teachers to give it because, you know, uh, it, it's this, you know, like, oh, well, if your teacher isn't giving homework, then maybe they're not being rigorous enough on their kids. Right. And then parents are like, well, I, I if my kid's not bringing something home, then what are they actually doing in class? Like, are, are they, 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 then they must not be learning. And then students are like, well, I have to do this because if I don't do the homework, then, you know, then then we have to get into this whole conversation about grades. Right. And like, our, you know, our <laughs> grading systems and like, well, yeah, if I'm not doing that, then, you know, and, and, and as teachers, then like on my end, we feel like, well, we don't want to ever be labeled as the teacher who doesn't give homework because we don't want to be seen as like a pushover. Right. Or, um, for example, like we want to be really careful about not giving too much because we know some some students are, you know, and in particular, like I have upper level students in my particular teaching circumstance. I mean, they bring home like four to five hours of homework in some cases per night which is an insane amount uh, to, you know, like for, for students to be expected to do. So for me, like that's, you know, that, that would be like an example of like, I guess my, my, my answer to that is like a, a couple of different points we can point to. No, definitely. All those features are evident, I think, in schools everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, They're still practicing um, a lot of these, um, you know, outdated ideas and i think just like any major institution it's a very slow moving bureaucracy and just a cultural change i mean for example generations of people have done homework then mm -hmm. there's going to be people questioning like why aren't we doing homework anymore why aren't you aren't practicing enough or um and then yeah. also ideas like well you know why don't we having less time in class we have the highest level of seat time versus a lot of other Western countries mm -hmm. in terms of like, does seat time equate to always learning? Yeah, no, it yeah. doesn't. And so um, it's really interesting that, you know, there's a lot of ideas. I think that the pandemic has percolated and brought to the surface, but really I don't think the work has been fully done yet to realize some of these ideas, I think in pockets. And I think mm -hmm. that it'll be interesting to see kind of what in five, the 10 years, what the things will look like. So I want to talk mm -hmm. a little bit about, you know, as we move into, you know, breaking the blockbuster model, all these things that you feel like that we should not do anymore and change. So what does this like look like for you? I always ask, like, what does your ideal school look mm -hmm. like or ideal classroom? What would you like to walk into as yeah. a student or as a, you know, teaching a class? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, so for me, I, I first, I guess I should preface that number one, like um, not everything that we do currently in classrooms is bad. There's definitely things that need to be preserved, right? Like number one, like this is a really classic example. Like we know that the most important thing in the classroom is the teacher and that teacher's relationship with their students. Like that absolutely should be carried on. Um, but there's things with, you know, well, there, there's elements of that relationship that can definitely be like reevaluated. Right. 
Um, so for me, kind of like what, and, and this is, gets into like, so basically what, what I did in the book is I broke it down into three steps or three metaphors, um, if you will. So we looked at the, and the, the beginning of the book starts with what is called like the movie theater model, which looks at teacher-centric instruction and direct instruction and things like that. Um, the blockbuster model, which is some of those traditional classroom practices that we talked about. And then my kind of like my, my solution, I think where we're going as education is what I call the streaming model. Um, and so the streaming model, basically what it does is it takes um, some of the ideas of like Blockbuster and the movie theater model, and it thinks about reinventing those in ways in terms of like how we set up our classrooms and how we you know, deliver content to students, or whatever it is. And we think about how we can reinvent that in ways that are more relevant uh, to students and how we can do it in ways that are especially more accessible to kids that aren't just limited to like our particular classroom walls. Um, and we're also thinking about like how it can be more relationship based as opposed to more transactional, um, which is kind of also a blockbuster, you know, blockbuster feature with things like grading and stuff like that. Right. Um, and also we're, we're thinking about how our classrooms can also be like more reflective because we, we don't want to say like, oh, we like we hit this point. We've made these improvements and we stop. For me, it's like this kind of very like continual like cutting and crafting at it until we get it better and better and better. Um, so for me, like one, one example of this, and I can kind of point to a couple instances of this that are, that are really powerful, um, is one is the idea of taking, taking time. And, and again, this can't all be done at once. I, I'm a big advocate that we can kind of slow drip these changes because as an educator, uh, I don't need more added to my plate right now, but there are things that we can do that can help lighten the load on us over time that can make these transformations happen. And one way of doing this for me is what I call cloning the classroom. Um, so if you're familiar with flipping, um, basically this idea is instead of thinking about like flipping just direct instruction and then, um, you know, like we, we, you know, we do all the, all the direct instruction at home, right? And then we bring all the collaborative stuff in school and we have that like dynamic. Instead, what we do is we flip everything but instead of it just all being digital what we invent is a clone that can exist both in the classroom that students can use right then and there that is in many cases digitally enhanced in some way shape or form right but then also students have access to a digital clone that same thing anywhere they want to 24 7 365 um, and so for me, this, this cloning is really important because number one, like for example, um, and, and a lot of teachers, we, we do this, right. But it's, it's taking elements of it and, and adding it in to make things more accessible as we're teaching and going on. Right. So like one example would be, um, so for example, like an LMS, right. Like we, we all like very typically use, whether it's, you know, canvas or Google classroom or, you know, who knows what, right. Um, so like when I post my assignments for my students on Schoology, the exact same slide deck that I'm using there, you know, and, and for me, mine are like hyperdocs, right? That, that, you know, that are very interactive and they have playable elements to them. I'm using that same document in class that students can use at home, right? And even if, you know, and this is like, it, man, this really like saved like my bacon in the pandemic. Um, even if I have a student who's out because of quarantines or like, I, I mean, I had students who had to stay home because they had to provide childcare for family members who all of a sudden had to start working. I'm giving them the best possible chance to access, have equitable access to their education. Right. Um, and even if it means like another example, this would be if I can hear or there 
take five or 10 minutes and record my direct instruction, and then students can use that over and over and over and over again, then automatically by the first time that a student has said, hey, what did we do yesterday? Like, I don't know what, you know, like what, I, I missed class, what's up? I'm like, hey, guess what? I got this, I, you know, I've, I've got this clone right here you can access and it's got everything you need, right? No, definitely. And it's, uh... so it's a, so eventually like it's, it becomes this enormous time saver that also is incredibly equitable. And when you start then building into the components of like any good instruction that we do as teachers, whether that's, you know, interactivity and choice and agency, or it's looking at, you know, um, you know, I'm building in, you know, scaffolding with differentiation. Like I, I, when we start to incorporate those elements, then like we get something really powerful happening, which, which that, that for me is like what instruction in the future looks like, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, no, I'm hundred percent on board. I, I, in, in the book that I wrote in 2020, 2021, and then, uh, what I'm coming out with in, uh, August really mm -hmm. focuses on that idea of 24 seven instructions, providing strategies that are equitable and for students mm -hmm. to learn that are also accessible. Yeah. I'm on the same yeah. train as you, man. It's, uh, I definitely, I this, this idea is like content as a service is not going away. No, um, I, I've talked about it with uh, Ryan Scott on his podcast, on his Big Ideas podcast, about the Peloton model. Mm -hmm. To me, yeah. that is, I mean, embodiment of what yeah. um, school could be. Mm -hmm. I mean, right? I I mean and, and then you also build in all these really powerful community components where yeah. you feel like you're part of something larger than yourself. Yes. Right? I mean, it's, it's why Duolingo has a Klingon, like, language mode on it. <laughs> I mean, like, the, like the, there's these elements about, you know, movie, and this is what I talk about in the book, like, there's these element of, like, movies where, like, you get this sense of a broader community that extends outside yourself, right? And, and that, I think, is where instruction, like, especially digitally, still needs to have that, that community component to 100%. it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. It's uh, definitely, I think that there's been advances in it especially mm -hmm. in terms of the tech that's available and platforms that built these communities. But now I think it's, I think mm -hmm. we'll see over time that there'll be opportunities for schools that could replicate this. I think there right. is, um, you know, there is opportunity out there. I don't think I've seen it yet on a mass scale, but I have seen some of this in pockets, but yeah. it's um, definitely and, something that I think is going to develop over time. Yeah. I will say, I think, Overall, like in terms of systemically, I think like an another thing that I kind of promote in the book is that like we start to differentiate classes and also instruction more like how our streaming services do. And like in and, and the platforms are so good about doing this, you know, Hulu and Amazon Prime or whatever mm -hmm. it is you're watching. Like it's like, do you want to watch Succession while you're you know, sitting in a hot tub? Sure. You can find they like we will make that possible for you. Yeah. And it's like, oh, no, do you want to watch it on your, like your, you know, Amazon Alexa while you're cooking? Sure. We're going to make that accessible for you to do. Like they're so good about meeting audiences where they are. And then by extension, like when you when 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 a person expresses interest in, you know, whatever show. Right. They're like, oh, you like this. Hey, would you like to also try this related thing that's about the same topic? You would totally dig this. And like, I think there's elements of high school where they have those like, you know, trails of interest that are there, right? But I think also like we can do this in our classrooms too on a much different level where instead yeah. of like standard hopping, right? From like thing to thing, we're like, oh, hey, you were totally interested in like the six wives of King Henry VIII. 
how about like looking at like modern royalty and like what they think about, you know, like heredity. Like it, it, so we, we think about the content of our classrooms much more differently thematically as opposed to, you know, our, our, our typical setup. Yeah, no, definitely. Speaking of that, you know, what are, you know, we're thinking about student-centered classrooms and just mm -hmm. when you're talking about that, you know, what came to my mind is project-based learning and that yeah. type of strategy, but you have that choice and voice element that's incorporated in it and then possibly even, you know, an extension into the real world is mm -hmm. like possibly the community or you bring in an expert. Um, there's a lot of different options now. So what are several, like, ideas that you've had with you know more student-centered classrooms and strategies yeah one thing that i propose and and um david frangosia who wrote a really brilliant uh selection for the book for it is you know looking ahead switching things away from a you know a typical grade setup to looking at a growth mindset yeah. uh, with students i think this is really really important because if we really do care about the kid you know centrally we really care about growth rather than grades. Um, and I, I think that's that's one thing in particular that needs to be taken a very hard look at. Now, different schools have come up for different solutions for this. Like, for example, my wife's school, they switched to standards-based grading, which is, I, I think, a step along that. It's still got lots of problems. Um, but I think, you know, that like we need to, we need to start kind of like looking at those threads, right, with, with grading and what we value right out of them. Um, I think, though, there, there's things that like on a very practical level we can do in our classrooms. One is adding interactivity. Um, it's really, really important that students have time to play uh, in in classes, no matter the content area. And for me, like having supported many different content areas, both in special education and now as a history teacher, um, you can give students abilities to play in any content area that that is imaginable. I mean, I, I have my students interact with choose your own journey stories all the time. Um, they love those things. And I've also even then, you know, turned that around to them and have them make them uh, as part of projects. Um, I think another thing too is beginning to add and in, in not just building on choice, but like giving students opportunities to express their knowledge in a way that's comfortable to them. Now, of course, like at different grade levels, this has to be done in a lot of different ways, right? Um, but for me, like, you know, as I'm building students opportunities to express what they know over time, um, I mean, I have a rule in my history classroom that nobody writes papers. They're, they are explicitly not allowed to do so. Uh, they have to show me what they know in ways that are other than a paper. And I will get the most creative solutions uh, for showing me what they know, um, you know, as, as the semester goes on with, with different things that we're, you know, interacting with. Um, but giving students the freedom to, you know, demonstrate their learning um, is, I think, another really powerful strategy that, that we can implement. And again, it has to be like gradually opened up over time. You don't want to be like, here's 40,000 options of how you can do this. It, like, you know, you start you know, with, with two or three, right? And then you, you open it up as time goes on yeah. and as you're comfortable and as students are comfortable. No, it's definitely that think less is more mindset, incorporate yeah. little things over time, scaffolded mm -hmm. it out. I mean, it's um I, I i really love the ungraded movement um mm -hmm. i think that that is i mean for someone like me I, i'll admit that i've never tried it before and the next opportunity i do have to teach a full class um mm -hmm. i am planning on going fully 
grade list. Yeah, me too. Um, I mean, I but I think that's that's where it's so hard for teachers because in a lot of ways, and this is something that we we explore in the book too, is that this is so hard for educators to get in some cases administrative backing on doing yeah. right and this and this builds into a whole nother conversation about like you know like what well, you know what vision does your admin have about what yeah. they view as like the few you know the future of education what really matters so there there's this it's a it's a multi-level discussion definitely for something like grading it's you it, you can be bought in yourself but if you don't have that support that's bought in around you then it could be i can imagine very isolating and um really hard to change not only just the classroom culture mm -hmm. but also the parents and community culture around that oh they, they hear that this class is they don't have grades like what do you mean they don't have grades yeah, how are you assessing progress are they doing, are they doing anything like Yes, we, we still are. It's just we're, we're, we're focused on something instead of letters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I There's a really cool platform that is called uh, Got Learning, which is showing mm -hmm. the, essentially the steps of just providing form, you know, formative feedback in a lot, you know, multimodal ways. That's definitely one that I will use along with uh, mm -hmm. Dave's, uh, you know, framework from grading. And it's uh, I think that to me is one along with providing that opportunity for 24 seven instruction, I think those two factors combined are, are, are really kind of the recipe. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think in the, in the real world, have you ever gotten a, an evaluation that's a grade? No, you've no, gotten like no. maybe a rubric and a something that's written up. And mm -hmm. I mean, you can look at maybe the research behind a rubric, but you're yeah. not, I mean, it's very much like a human oriented process yeah yeah and there's and there's still like ways that you know we like and it, like if you look at like if you look at any modern workforce and they are like hey you want to get this career certificate and doing this like try this online course and you and you get unlimited attempts to make growth over time right yeah. so like there's there's examples out there that we have of you know like of <laughs> the I, we don't care how you did on the SAT. Uh, it's it's we we care much more about like what like what can we scale you to be able to do and how and how can we scale you to grow right and and that that's also kind of what needs to happen in our classes too. Yeah, I think there's a lot of those different attributes of um, just for example, someone's ability to wanting to learn to become a lifelong learner. Like, can we measure that? What type of skills are involved in that? Mm -hmm. And also, too, it's like in classrooms, you know happiness students well-being i mean yeah. right now across the country especially for teenagers and and adults as well as mental health is a, it's a really a crisis so you know we should in schools probably should be measuring happiness because then we can provide supports yeah so that down the road line there won't be as much uh disruption in the community um and i think that some of these models are there's opportunities for that and um, but it takes though that buy in that culture piece. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, it's like you can do it in a single classroom and make that difference. But taking everything to scale is definitely the hardest part. I think in yeah. essentially anything from whether it's education or a product or service. I mean, taking it really to scale in that culture. Did you ever talk about um, you know how we can change some of this? culture from the blockbuster model to breaking the blockbuster model? 
Yeah, I, I, I talk about it some in the book. Um, although as for me as a teacher, um, you know, I've never been in an admin position. It's it's easy for me to sit there, right, and to um, you know, criticize and you know, make make recommendations. Um, you know, I, I do have, you know, my my grandfather was a school superintendent out in um western Indiana for a long time. Um, and my mom obviously being in more of an admin mm -hmm. role herself. Um, you know, so I, I do have a pretty decent understanding of what you know, that, that entails. Um, so I, I kind of recommend a couple of things. Um, one is that change from the bottom up is much more powerful than change from top down. Um, and this is where I highly, highly, highly encourage folks not only to look at, you know, because ad, admin does matter, like it, it absolutely does. It has a huge impact. But what matters more is that teachers and, you know, secretaries and, you know, all the like, you know, library, you know, teacher librarians and, you know, special education, um, you know, aides and everybody who's involved in the system from the bottom buys up and helps inform that vision that's that's up there, right? It, it top down doesn't inform what's down here, bottom informs what's what's up here, right? So I, I think that's that's a really important moment. Um, or, you know, like moment for us to kind of pause and reflect on. Um, I do, though, think that admin has a role in help facilitating and helping guide and celebrate those teachers who are doing some of those things that are making our classrooms more equitable and, you know, relevant uh, and student centered. Um, and along that, like, I think, and this is like, if that, if I could make like one plea to admin, like what they, what they could do, um, it would be two, two things. One is, and well, I guess one is one thing I talk in my book, I call it the three R's. It's like my three R rated movies. Uh, <laughs> one is um, reflect it, it, like, so like, is what we're doing right now working? And, and I'm, I'm not joking when I tell you this story, I was sitting in a, a PD a while ago um, in a school who had asked me to go there and speak and and uh, they they had some breakout sessions after. And one of the sessions was they sat down and they looked at the uh, disproportionality of students of color who had incurred discipline referrals compared to uh, students, mostly white students. Uh, they, were, they were doing this comparison. And what they literally, the only thing they did was they presented the data. They said, yes, we have a disproportionate impact on students of color and, and their references, you know, in, in detentions and suspensions and, um, you know, tardies. Uh, Know, whatever it was and then they just stopped there and they yeah. didn't they didn't do anything with the data and i was like oh so we're just gonna like point it out but then not do anything about it and then that brings me to like the second r which is reorient like if you notice that something isn't working you need to try something like you just can't you know sit there and reflect and, and not take any kind of action right when we, and this is what paulo freire calls praxis like you know reflection and then practice Right. And you just kind of keep going it over and over and over again. And then the last thing that I, I would promote, um, well, the, the last R is then relationships. Like the the whole thing, there there has to be such tight, cohesive communication between all these different people who are involved. Um, but then the the kind of the second big point that I would my, I would make as a plea to like admin would be the freedom to try things. Um, if your teachers aren't allowed to take risks and to attempt to do things that are going to seem insane at first, but they might actually work. Um, 
you're you're probably if you're not willing to take risks, you're probably actually actually doing like the most risky thing possible, which is not taking risks at all. Um, and and in that case, in many cases, well, at least in my experience, uh, traveling around to, you know schools in the United States, uh, is you're probably perpetuating some kind of issue that is long-standing and you're not fixing. So that that would be kind of like my main two points. So, yeah, no, those are those are great. I love how you did the uh, metaphor for the three R's for the R-rated movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I think that you, you make a really good point. And I mean, it so, sounds like just uh, maybe you've read Michael Fullen and Joanne Quinn, uh, the parent mm -hmm. firm, but you were definitely touting off exactly what they're saying, like risk, take, allow teachers freedom, take instructional yeah. risks, but also, you know, you know, communicate with them, build the relationships with them and have it be more of the, you know, bottom up versus top down. And mm -hmm. um yeah, it's 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 all. I mean, I think that really the innovative schools are those places where that's happening, yeah. and where it's more of a compliance-based culture. You're seeing just more of the blockbuster model. I really, yeah. I really truly think that. And for and, me, like it, this is what I wrote about in the book. Is like for me, the the greatest example of that is like the blockbuster relate fee, right? Where that's what homework is for our kids. Like just as a, like an example, it's like mm -hmm. a, it's like a blockbuster membership. They never asked for, um, like in, in, in like, and Vattertrot talks about uh, who I mentioned earlier, talks about this, where it becomes like, you know, what was the one thing always stopping us from going back to blockbuster or Redbox or family video? We had those here in the Midwest. Um, you know, it, it was always the late fee, right? Yeah. Like it was the number one thing like was late work, uh, you know, it, for a lot of our students is turning work in is like, they don't want to get points off, you know? So yeah, I, I agree. Like there's, there's just such a need that we have from as teachers that we can take risks on like, what if we do no late work? Like what would happen? You know? Yeah. So I, 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 I would encourage, yeah, lots of risk taking is really, really important. Yeah. And that, and then over time, you know, you know, if you know the teacher's working hard and you're seeing some outcomes, like it creates agency, it creates, um, you know, opportunities. So I think that that's huge. So really fantastic conversation we've had today. So what are, you know, we, I always ask every guest before they leave, what are two to three tips that you provide educators with right now, regardless of their position yeah. in education and context, how, mm -hmm. you know, to navigate the present and then the future of education? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is start small. Um, you don't have to build whatever or craft whatever vision of you think your classroom will or should be right away. Start with something manageable that you can do in the time that you have and that you feel like that you can give in that moment. Um, I, I would say then the second thing is look for those people around you. They don't necessarily have to be people like, I mean, Matt and I would love, you know, of course you to go and buy your books and like read your stuff, right? But like there's folks around you that, and I, I call them like organic intellectuals who are the folks that are in your building who, you know, you may know like, you know, down the hallway or, you know, people, people like that who are very familiar with what you're going through as a teacher or even as a fellow administrator and they know your context of, you know, in the water that you're swimming in and you can reach out to them and ask for help. Um, the third thing, and this is kind of like, then I guess kind of in some ways an opposite of looking at for organic intellectuals is do look out there for people like, you know, for a larger PLN, like a professional learning network who can help point you to the things that you can reflect and grow about. Um, because trust me, like, 
one of us uh, is not going to have the answer, but 50 of us might have something that might point you in the right place. Um, so I, I would always encourage, you know, just to be intellectually hungry for more to think about and more to dwell on. Yeah, no, I know. I love those tips. Uh, really just it, it helps to start small, you know, mm -hmm. rely on your local and global PLN and really just, you know, I think just take your time and just navigate those spaces, um, you know, as you can and try not to just take on too much and just crowdsource take a lot of i mean so many great ideas are out there and you mm -hmm. can just rely on so many people that are doing such amazing things in their classroom whether it's down the door you know down the, the hallway or mm -hmm. school district or um and in, in a different school across the world from you. so it, it's it, it's been a fantastic conversation nate and where's the best place for everyone to follow you on social media or mm -hmm. uh, learn more about you yeah, so uh, for me, probably the easiest place to connect with me would be on Twitter. Um, you can see my my handle right here um, at Teach from Ridge. Um, it shared with my mom because we, you know, we we co-authored our first book together, so uh, that that was fun. Um, but yeah, that 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 would be it. And then um, you can also uh, reach out to me, and I can um, post this here in the the chat. Um, I'll put my email out there as well. Um, so, and. Uh, they, they, that, that's my email. It's a nate at teachingfromtheridge.com. Awesome. That's that's fantastic. I'm putting up the banner just now so everyone can see. So you guys can definitely contact him there. I know he's on LinkedIn as well. So you can follow him there as, as well. And he posts like blog, tons of really cool blogs, always posting good content. So, um, you know, go, I per recommend go purchase the book as well as just read his, com you know, uh, content that's out there in his blog, doing great things. So I really appreciate you being on tonight. No, thanks so much, Matt, for having me. It was it's my pleasure. For sure. And for all of our listeners and viewers, you can go to matthewroads.com and listen to the podcast on all your favorite streaming platforms, as well as YouTube. Um, on YouTube, it's at MattRhodes1990. And I'm excited to, we're almost the episode 50. This is 49. So we were basically two away from big five Oh, and I'm really excited to what's to come uh, for our next few guests. And until next time, everyone, you know, hopefully the content that we're providing is helping you navigate not only now, but also the present. Have a fantastic evening, everyone. And we'll talk to you soon.